whenever I'm invited to speak, I take advantage of this Chusarabim to try to get a new perspective on the Yom Tov, on the Inyan. You often see in, in Svarim that the Mechabim writes, that in the merit of the, of the Rabim who <coughs> come, that's what allowed me to gain this insight or to formulate this perspective. And I often, I guess, in, in the moment of cynicism, I often thought that that was just a melitza, that was just a euphemistic uh, turn of speech. But then when one begins to give shi'urim, one really realizes how true it is that often one wanders, one struggles to prepare, and then immediately beforehand things crystallize. It's clearly b'schusarabim. So whenever, whenever asked to speak, I, I try to take advantage to formulate a new perspective. However, this perspective wasn't exactly what, the, what I bargained for here. <laughs> I'm a little scared of heights, but I'll, I'll do my best anyway. The Gemara in Shabbos tells us that that when a person kindles an Echanika, he makes a bracha. And the Gemara goes on to explain that the first night one makes three brachas, and subsequently on the other nights one makes two brachas, omitting of course the Shachiyanu, just the Then the Gemara says that on I think I'm a Yemiya, that Haroah and Echanik is also Tzarech Levarech. Even the way we interpret this Gemara Lahalacha, it's subject to a major dispute amongst the Rishonim, but the way we interpret this Gemara Lahalacha, if a person has not yet lit himself, nor will he be lighting tonight, nor for that matter, is someone lighting on his behalf in his home, right? Shalohidlik. That ain't no osid lahadlik, that ain't madlik and alav viveso. So then haroa nechanikah tzarech levarech as well. That one who sees a nechanikah also makes a bracha. The Gemara then explains that unlike the madlik nechanikah, on the first night the roa nechanikah only makes two brachos, only makes two brachos, she'otzo nisim and she'hechiyanu. And subsequently, after the first night, he only makes now, this, these two dimensions of the mitzvah, of Nechanika, distinguish the mitzvah. For instance, if you contrast it with Mikra Megillah, so Mikra Megillah doesn't have these, these two dimensions. Mikra Megillah is a mitzvah for, for men. The definition of the, uh, of the mitzvah is to read the Megillah. For women, the, the definition perhaps is to hear the Megillah. But again, you don't have these two elements or these two dimensions of which would parallel the Hadloka by Ner Hanukkah, the lighting the Ner Hanukkah, as well as the Re'iyah of the Ner Hanukkah. So let's try to understand, Alpiagoda, what the significance of, of these two elements, these two dimensions within the mitzvah are. 
know, of course, that in terms of the historical background of Hanukkah, there are two miracles which form that background. The military victory, where the Hashmonoim prevailed against all odds over against the Syrian Greek army, and of course the Neis Shavashemen, the miracle in the Vesa Mikdash, where the small quantity of oil lasted for eight days. Now, the significance of these two miracles, Lechor, is as follows. There are two types or two expressions or manifestations of emunah, of faith. There's one type of manifestation of emunah where a person initiates a course of action based upon emunah. A person acts. He's proactive. And that action is rooted in his emunah. Now, let's, let's clarify this point. Now, undoubtedly, the Torah requires us to be practical. And Somfen al is both a halachic principle, the Gemara M'sachim commenting on the Mishnah that the Koven Pesach was supposed to be offered B'Shalosh Kitos. There was supposed to be three groups in slaughtering the Koven Pesach. Klal Yisrael was supposed to be divided into three groups, into Shalosh Kitos. So the Gemara says that Rav says that the correct Girsa in the Mishnah is Noalutnan, that they didn't, unlike, they didn't wait miraculously for the doors of the Azara to close, but rather when the Azara was filled, so they would close the doors, and that would form the first cut, the, fourth, the first group for Shaklin Kovim Pasach, and then they would repeat that procedure with the second group, and they, again, proactively determined that there would be Shalosh Kitos, that there would be three groups Shaklin the Kovim Pasach. And the Gemara says, because Lo Anisa, because we have to be practical. We can't say, well, if it's the Ritzon Hashem, if the Rivon Shalom wants that the Kovim Pesach should be Nishkat B'Shalosh Kita, so then miraculously the, the, the Dal Seho Azara will be Nin Olim on their own. No, we can't do that because Lo Samchin and Anissa. The Torah requires us to be practical. To such an extent that the Gemara earlier in Safan tells us that even though we have a Klal, even though we have a rule that Shluchay Mitzvah Enon Nizokin, that when a person undertakes a, uh, a journey when a person is, is traveling on a mission to do a mitzvah so that gives him an insurance policy that, it's, it, that he's protected that no harm will come his way but the Gemara says if that means an unusual type of occurrence but if there's a very great chance of danger so then a person can't rely on this principle of shluchay mitzvah because again, the halacha Torah requires us to be practical, very practical, very pragmatic. And that's true in all realms of life, right? In terms of panosa, we're not supposed to sit back and say, well, since kalm is an also shaladim ktsuvim, since HaKadosh Baruch Hu apportions how much panosa each of us is going to receive, so I can sit back and just wait for that panasa? No, in Tzomchan Alanais, the Ritzon Hashem is that we operate through natural channels. And hence, again, we have to take initiative. Nevertheless, 
while, again, this halacha ve'en somchan alaneis certainly is the operative one at 99% of occasions, maybe even 99.9% of occasions in our personal lives and maybe even in our collective national lives, there's also another halacha. In Midrash HaTorah Nidrash's Bohen, the Gemara has in Sukkah and elsewhere a notion of Eindonin Efsha Mi'i Efsha. For instance, just to provide the, the halachic context of, of that principle, the Gemara discusses whether or not the klishares, whether or not the uh, utensils, the vessels which they used in the Vesa Mikdash, whether or not they could be made out of wood. Whether Asan eats, whether or not that's fit to be used as a klishares, or no, that's not sufficiently... It's not, it's not appropriate for the Beis HaMikdash. Now the, now, the issue is that we have a precedent that the flute, which, uh, which we have yet, which they had in the Beis HaMikdash from the times of Moshe Rabbeinu, was made out of eight. It was made out of wood. So the Gemara says, the Gemara says, well, why don't we simply deduce from that that since that was used for Shira to accompany, to accompany the Korbanos, to accompany the, the, the Nesachim, it, it provided the, the, the shira in the Beis HaMikdash, so doesn't that clearly indicate that a cliché is that the utensils in the Beis HaMikdash can be made out of wood? So the Gemara says, no, there, there's a different reason, because if you would make it out of some metal, it wouldn't produce the same sound. That a flute is not going to produce a nice sound if you make it out of, out of copper or out of uh, some other metal. So, ain't done in Efsha, Misha'i Efsha, that you can't, he can't extrapolate from a circumstance where there's no choice, where there's no alternatives, where there are no other options. He can't extrapolate from there to a normal situation where there are options, where there are alternatives. And similarly, again, just to, again, I, I, I apologize for the, uh, some of the, the, the technicalities here, but just bear with me one more moment. Similarly, just to give another example of where we see this as a halachic principle playing out, Tosus explains the Gemara in Yevamis searches for the source, for the rule that Asei Dochalosa say, right? That we know that the halacha has a rule that if there's a clash between a mitzvah Asei and a mitzvah say, and it's impossible to resolve that clash, so then the Asei overrides the Losase. The positive commandment overrides the negative commandments. The Tosa says, how come the Gemara doesn't prove this from Big Day Kahuna? The Big Day Kahuna, which the Kohen used to wear when performing the Avodah, contains Shatnes. Contains Shatnes. So why don't we say that the mitzvah of doing Avodah here is clearly overriding the Losase, which prohibits us from wearing clothing which has Kalayim. So Tosa's answer is no, you couldn't extrapolate from because since the Torah specifies that the Big Day Kahuna must be made out of Shatnes, so it's impossible to wear Big Day Kahuna in any other fashion. What we want to know is when you have an incidental clash between an Asse and a Losase. We want to know when there happens to be a Negat Saras, when there happens to be a spot on the Mokum Hamila, so that's incidental, right? Nine times out of ten, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, so we're able to perform the bris on the eighth day without having to cut off a spot of tzaras. 
It happens once in a blue moon that there will be a little negatoras there. So we want to know when there's an incidental clash or conflict between an assay and a losasay. We're looking for a source that even in that case, the assay overrides the losasay. So again, that's another instance of where we can't extrapolate from a situation where there are no alternatives, such as Kalayim and Big Day Tahuna, where the mitzvah could never, ever be performed without overriding the prohibition of Kalayim, because the Torah describes the Big Day Tahuna as containing Kalayim. We can't extrapolate from there to ever, to ever mitzvahs. But this, this rule is not simply a, a rule in halacha, but it's a rule in Hashkafa as well. To illustrate that, the Rav Zuchanan Levacha often said in, 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 in Drushes, particularly when he'd be talking about Chinuch and about the challenges of, uh, of Chinuch in America, if he'd be addressing a, a parent body or, or a general group, so the Rav would describe the, the need, the vital need for a double program. That on the one hand, Again, as clearly was the Rav's credo, that if we try to withdraw from society, if we make it an either-or between being able to earn a living within society or remaining loyal to Torah, that ultimately people would assimilate and that uh, retreating into a, into a ghetto wouldn't help. So, Limudechol are vital, given the historical reality and context in which we live. But obviously, obviously, the commitment to Limude Kodesh, the perennial, eternal commitment which we have to Limude Kodesh, obviously, is, is also vital. So that's what the Rav used to say, that we're committed to this idea of a double program, and it's an unwavering commitment. And the Rav would say, Kedarko, he would say, if you'll ask me, is it possible? Is it possible to convince, and again, you have to remember that he began giving these drushes back in the 40s, back in the 50s, when the landscape was very different than it was, than it is today. He would say, if you'll ask me, is it possible to achieve this? Is it possible to convince parents that they should send their children to such yeshivas, to such day schools? Is it possible to really educate our youth that on the one hand they should be Talmidei Chachamim, while on the same hand, while at the same time they carry the burden of this double program of secular studies of Limudei Chol as well. So the Rav used to say, if you'll ask me if it's possible, I'll tell you, I don't know. Maybe it's impossible. But what I know is that we have no choice. And since we have no choice, we'll do it. And we have to succeed. Whether it's possible, I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is that there's no alternative, that there's no choice, that this is the only way Torah is going to survive, and, th- and if there's no alternative, so then we must do it. There are certain t- moments in a person's individual life, in our collective national lives, where we have to suspend the general rule of in some Khanalanais. And requires us to calculate is this reasonable? Is it practical? Does, are the chances for success realistic? That's what in some requires of us. There are moments in our personal lives, in our history, 
where there are no alternatives. If there are no alternatives, then ain't done in Efsha Mishi Efsha. So then a person can't ask himself, is it realistic? That's what the Rav said. I don't know if it's realistic, but it's vital. There is no alternative. If there's no alternative, then a person must be committed to it. If we could go back in a time tunnel and meet Matis Ben Yochanan, Kohen Gadol, and say to him, Ishi Kohen Gadol, this revolt which you're initiating against the Syrian Greek Empire, against the superpower of its day, is it realistic? Is there a chance that, that it's going to succeed? Do you have a blueprint for how a few disorganized people uprooted from the base Medrash are going to prevail against the superpower of its day. So Matis would have answered us in the words of the Rav, no, I don't know how it's possible, but I know that given the Gezeros, given the fact that if we don't resist, if we don't revolt, it's going to result in Lahashkichon Torah and Lahavira Merchukei so what I know is that we have no alternative. Maybe it's not possible. Maybe it's not realistic. But there are times when there's no alternative. A person has to suspend the normal hanhoga, the normal 99.9% of the time practice of calculating. Is it realistic? Should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? Sometimes there is no alternative. There's only one course of action. And that's what Matisyahu recognized in the Nase of Hanukkah. So that's one type of emunah. It's an emunah, a manifestation of emunah where a person where a person realizes that practical or impractical right, emunah in the Ribbam dictates that this is the only course of action and what's more, my emunah in the Ribbam dictates that somehow or other, possible or impossible, practical or impractical, we can and will prevail. Perhaps homiletically, one could, one could attribute this approach to Rebchanino ben Dosa in the famous Gemara in, in Tainus, where the Gemara tells us that Chad Be Shimshei, Chad Yelebrate Dahava that one Shabbos night, one Friday night, Rav Hanina ben Dosa observed that his daughter was very downcast. My daughter, why are you so sad? I confused a flask of vinegar with a flask of oil. And instead of putting oil and lighting that for the Shabbos licht, I lit vinegar. So, Amalah biti, my yichpas lach. What do you care? What difference does it make? Misha Amalah shemen v'yidlok, hu yoma lachomez v'yidlok. Whoever the Ribbono Shalom, who ordained that oil should burn and should be a source of illumination, when we find ourselves without alternative, it's Shabbos, there's nothing else we can do. We find ourselves without any alternatives, without any other options. So the, the Ribbon Shalom who ordained that ordinarily oil burns and ordinarily we have to make every effort possible to obtain oil to light for Shabbos, he will ordain that the vinegar burns. And the Gemara records 
that in fact, that not only did it last the normal three or four hours, which the Shabbos candles ordinarily last, but it lasted the entire day until they used it for the Ne'er for Havdalah as well. So there's, there's a Halacha and there's a Hashkotha in Som Kanala Neis, again, which is the operative Halacha 99% of the time. But then there's also a Halacha Hashkotha of Misha Amal L'Shemin V'Yidlok, is Yom HaLachometz V'Yidlok, that in the 1% of the time, so we have no alternatives, we have no options. And when we find ourselves either individually, personally, or collectively, nationally, in such a situation, so then the operative principle becomes Misha Oma L'Shemen V'Yidlok, Yoma L'Chometz V'Yidlok. Is it possible? No, it's impossible. But the Ribbonu Shalom will somehow see us through. This, this manifestation of Emunah was present in the revolt of the Hashmonoi. There is another less dramatic, less heroic manifestation of Emunah, and that is where one doesn't initiate action based upon one's Emunah, but rather one reacts. Instead of being proactive, one is reactive. One recognizes Yad Hashem. One recognizes miracles which happen in the world, and one gives Shevach V'hodah, one thanks HaKadosh Baruch Hu for those miracles. One's not proactive in the sense that Matis Yahu, Ubanov were proactive in manifesting their emunah in the Beis HaMikdash, but rather one is, is reactive. One recognizes, appreciates, and thanks HaKadosh Baruch Hu for the miracles. This was what happened with the second miracle of Hanukkah. The first miracle was a miracle again of Misha Amal Hashem and Vyidlok, where they again undertook something which was impractical. It made no sense whatsoever, but there was no alternative. They had to do it. The Shemin in the, in the Beis HaMikdash, especially according to those views that they used the entire quantity of oil the first night, so they were, they were lighting what they had the first night. The Ribbon Shalom made a miracle. Here their Amuna consisted in recognizing the miracle. It wasn't that they had initiated a course of action which then precipitated, which evoked the miracle. It wasn't that heroic, mysterious nefesh, but it was rather an appreciation, a sensitivity. That manifestation of emuna, of recognizing the miracle when it happens, not, not being insensitive, not dismissing it. And this was what the... The Neshavashemen represented was this second type of Emunah. Interestingly, the, the Raman tells us in, in, in Hilchas Chanukah that Mitzvah Nechanukah, Mitzvah Chavivah Hiyad Ma'od. That the Mitzvah Nechanukah is an especially precious Mitzvah. V'tzorach Odom Lihizahe Ba Kedei Lahodiyah Hanais that a person has to be especially meticulous about observing the mitzvah of Now, Now, let, let's note very carefully here, in order to publicize the miracle, right, in the singular, Lashon Yochid, 
and to give praise to Hashem al hanisim sha'asalanu. So the Rambam begins in the singular that the mitzvah of Nechanike is a mitzvah to publicize the miracle in the singular of Hanukkah, and then says that as a result of this mitzvah, we should give shevach v'hodara to HaKadosh Baruch Hu al-hanisim, in the plural, she'asalan. So why this shift? So what, what the Rambam here is telling us is that through the sensitivity which a person gains in recognizing, again, the reactive type of emunah, the appreciation of miracles, through that sensitivity that a person has in recognizing the nace of Nechanika, that should then allow him to recognize countless other miracles, again, personally and nationally, and it should result in his giving a Shavach Vahodorah, not only for the nace of Chanika, but for all the myriad nisim, which Amisacha Shabachal Yom Imanu. That's why, parenthetically, in, in, in the Mo's Tzor, if, if you look at the, the Pismon, at the Song of Mo's Tzor, so it's really equally appropriate for Pesach, for Purim, for Hanukkah. There's one stanza devoted to each. So why is it that, that on Hanukkah we review all the other Yomim Tovim, all the other Nisim, but that's exactly the idea which the Rambam is presenting, that the whole idea of Hanukkah is, again, the second type of Emunah, is also present in the miracle of Hanukkah. The Amuna which a person recognizes Nisim, and through that sensitivity, which a person gains from the nace of Hanukkah, he's supposed to recognize, again, the whole range of miracles which are with us. Coming back then to our original question, which we posed, of why is it that the mitzvah of Nech Hanukkah contains these two elements, both the mitzvah's Hadlaka as well as Re'iyah? That the mitzvah is not merely to light the Ne'er Hanukkah, but there's also a mitzvah simply in seeing the Ne'er Hanukkah. So we can now understand that the Hadlaka and the Re'iyah reflect these two types of Emunah which were present in the nace of Ne'er Hanukkah. In Hadlaka, a person creates the light. A person has to be proactive. He has to initiate. He has to create. So this again reflects this this symbolizes, again, that manifestation of emunah, of where a person embarks upon a course of action, where that course of action is only possible and is only justified because of, of one's emunah in the Rivana Shalala. That's the mitzvah hadloka. But Nechanika also, there was also the Nes Shem, and The Nes Shem wasn't the Nes which we initiated. It wasn't like the revolt on the battlefield against all practical odds. In the nace of, of the Sheba Shemin, we didn't do anything. In the nace of Shemin, our role was, again, was passive, was to appreciate, was to acknowledge, to recognize, and be inspired by the miracle which HaKadosh Baruch Hu performed for us. That Ladoros is perpetuated in the mitzvah of Re'iyas Nechanukah, to see the Nechanukah as well. So we have a mitzvah hadloka, again, where, where one initiates based on one's emunah, where even though it's impossible, even though it's totally and thoroughly impractical, but achal pichain, that was the midah of Matisyahu Ubonov. But then Nechanukah, of Hanukkah also, also teaches us that a second manifestation of emunah, 
that of the passive, reactive one, where a person recognizes the miracle. Not that he initiated it through his, through his own course of action, but the Rebona Shalom initiated it. And then it's our job, it's our assignment to recognize it and appreciate it. This is what the two dimensions of Hadlaka and Re'iyah within their Hanukkah capture. There's a very obvious question here, though. And that is, if in fact this analysis is correct, that the miracle on the battlefield, Gova Malchus, Beis Cheshmonoi V'Nitzchom, that their prevailing on the battlefield was a manifestation of the first type of Emunah, the heroic type of Emunah, where a person undertakes a course of action which, practically speaking, has no chance whatsoever to succeed. What need does such a person have for the second type of nace? The second type of nace would seem to be for one who doesn't have the emunah necessarily to initiate a course of action. One who's perhaps not quite on that heroic level of emunah, to initiate a course of action against all odds, so then one perhaps is only capable of this, of this second lower level of emuna, of reactive emuna, a passive emuna. But if one has the emuna of the chashmonoim, if one has the mysterious nefesh and the emuna of the chashmonoim to initiate, to revolt, and to say, well, there is no other alternative. So it doesn't make a difference, practical or impractical, possible or impossible. So what need does one have for that second nace, for the nace Shevashemen? So the Maharal comments that the nace Shevashemen was to clarify that what happened on the battlefield was indeed a miracle. Lest one attribute it to superior intelligence, and superior military strategy. Make no such mistake. The Rebbe Shalom clarified for us, and that's what the Nes Shevashemen clarified. But that doesn't really answer our question, because that should have been abundantly clear. The entire course of action initially was initiated only because of their emunah. If Matisyahu, Ubanov, and everyone who joined the revolt didn't have this profound emunah, of Micha Mochov Ba'elim Hashem, of Lo Vachayo, Lo Vachoach Kiyem Beruchi, Amma Hashem Tzvakos, if they hadn't had that Emunah, they never would have undertaken a revolt. Why did they need, why did they need the second miracle, the Neshev Hashemen? They, they shouldn't have had any doubts. So clearly one answer could be that maybe, the, maybe that miracle had a different audience. Maybe there was a different audience that was that was being targeted, and maybe, in fact, someone who's capable of displaying the mysterious nefeshem and emunah of Matisyahu Ubanov doesn't need a neshevashemen, because if one can, can manifest an active emunah, so one doesn't need to be tested whether or not one can display a reactive emunah. Now, but while that's well, that's certainly true. There is another answer as well. And that is that human nature is such, not speaking about Matisyahu as, as an individual anymore, but as a, 
as a type, as a topology that we all aspire to. Human nature is such that even if one initially displays the Messias Nefesh Emuna of Matis Yahu, of undertaking a course of action that's totally impossible, seems futile, but one says there is no alternative. This is, this is necessary for Torah. There is no alternative. Even someone who has that strength and those wellsprings of Emuna to draw from, there's still a danger that in retrospect, after having succeeded, there's still a danger that one now can reinterpret what happened. And despite the fact that initially one was energized by this, again, active, initiative emuna, but nevertheless, in retrospect, the danger exists that one will reinterpret and say, you know what, maybe we really did succeed because of superior strategizing and because we were more prepared and we were more devoted and we were more dedicated and maybe that's what allowed us to overcome the seemingly overwhelming odds. Even one who initially has that, again, profound emunah, an emunah which is, which is rooted in Messiris Nafesh, even such a person is prone in retrospect after having tasted the sweetness of success, that person is also prone to reinterpreting what happens and to perhaps making the mistake of attributing it to, you know what happened? It was our savvy and it was our devotion and it was our dedication which allowed us to prevail. And hence, it's not enough, it wasn't enough in the time of Hanukkah to have a miracle on the battlefield. It wasn't enough that they should be tested to initiate the revolt against Antiochus, against the Syrian Greeks, that they should demonstrate that heroic type of emunah, it was also necessary that they be tested whether or not they would recognize after the fact, ex post facto, that it was Yad Hashem, that they had not been spoiled by success. In, in reflecting on, on contemporary Jewish history, One can't help but be struck by the fact that in the years leading up to 1948 and perhaps afterwards, Klau Yisrael collectively fulfilled the mitzvah Hadloka. Klau Yisrael demonstrated an unswerving and unyielding emunah in pursuing a dream which was not only impractical but positively impossible. That Klau Yisrael should regain sovereignty over Eretz Yisrael. That in 1948, that before 1948, that England, then one of the superpowers of the world, one of the large empires that somehow or other a band of dreamers and idealists could drive out the English was not practical. It wasn't possible. In 1948, when the English withdrew, that this same band 
was unarmed, basically, almost unarmed dreamers and survivors could somehow to rather band together and survive the incursion from all sides of Arab armies was also not practical. It wasn't possible. Absolutely impossible. And yet, Klau Yisrael fulfilled the mitzvahs hadlokah. Again, the mitzvahs hadlokah is not Hanukkah representing initiating that course of action of saying, I don't know if it's possible, but there's no alternative. We have to go forward. Possible or impossible, there is no alternative. And Klau Yisrael was Mikhayim, that mitzvah hadlaka, not only the basic mitzvah, not only mahadrin, mahadrin mina mahadrin. But at some point, the wisdom of Chazal, that even if a person has been Mikhayim the mitzvah hadlaka, a person also has to be sensitive and also has to be capable of fulfilling the mitzvah's re'iyah, the wisdom of Chazal became all too painfully evident. At some point, what originally had been a mission driven and energized, certainly for the religious minority in the group, and maybe even the irreligious without really recognizing it, and subconsciously, what had been driven by Emuna what had been a manifestation of, hash, of, of, of the emunah, the chashmonayim. But then when it came to the re'iyah, when it came to standing back after 48, after 67, and looking at the miraculous success, so we faltered. We faltered. And somehow or other, somehow or other, somehow or other the notion that it was our savvy and that it was our preparedness and the fact that the, the, the Arabs were ill-prepared, that maybe that's what really had made possible the miracle of 67 or the miracle of 1948. So if the mitzvah had was fulfilled, there came a time at which we began to fail to fulfill the mitzvah's re'iyah of Ne'er Hanukkah. The mitzvah's re'iyah of Ne'er Hanukkah demands that we recognize that it doesn't matter how savvy, it doesn't matter how devoted, it doesn't matter how dedicated, that combination can't account for the success in 1948, that combination can't account for the success in 1967, it can't account for Uganda. The only thing that can account for Uganda is Misha Amal Shemin Vyidlok, who Amal Chomitz Vyidlok. The Ribon Shlolem, who said that generally, according to Dakya Hateva, if you have an army of millions against a small band of dreamers and idealists, that generally the millions will prevail. So Misha Amal Shemin Vyidlok is who Amal. Now, 
in the crisis which engulfs Klal Yisrael, we challenged this Hanukkah to fulfill both a mitzvah hadloka as well as a mitzvah sviyah. A mitzvah hadloka means that there is no practical solution. There is no practical solution. Every practical solution across the political spectrum has failed. The attitude has to be, the attitude has to be the same attitude which Matisio had of that clearly, that clearly what's needed here is a course of action which is energized by Amunah, recognizing that Kali Yisrael is alone in the world, that Kali Yisrael has no natural solutions without Chateva to its crisis, but neither did Matis Yahu. We didn't have it two millennia ago either. There was no practical solution then either, but there was a course of action which was driven, which was energized by Amuna, which is, we have no choice, we have no one else, we have no one to look to. Misha Amar L'Shem in V'Yidlok Hu Yom HaLachometz V'Yidlok How do we, as B'nai Chutz Lawyers, participate in that? We don't, we don't serve in the army, we don't vote to elect a government that can adopt such a course of action. But we also have to strengthen our tie to Eretz Yisrael. We also have to strengthen our tie to Eretz Yisrael. If our claim and our right to Eretz Yisrael is being threatened, is being denied, so our response is that we have to, we have to strengthen it. How do we strengthen it? The Torah says, Vayetze Yaakov mibeh shova vayelecharon. Chazal in the Medrash are prompted by the question, why does the Torah emphasize Yaakov's port of departure? It might not even have been directly Be'er Shava. According to some views in the Medrash, at that point Yitzhak and Rivka, and therefore Yaakov as well, were living in, in Chevron. And he left initially from Chevron and went via Be'er Shava. Why is the Torah emphasizing that he left from Be'er Shava? So one, one approach in the Medrash is, that Vayetze Yaakov in Be'er Shava is not describing his geographical point of departure, but rather his spiritual port of departure. That when Yaakov left, he left taking Be'er Shava with him. He left with the notion, with the conviction, that even though he had to go to Lavan, he had to go to Chutz Laaretz, but he went with Be'er Shava. His orientation... His essence remained, remained in Eretz Yisrael. That's who he was. His home was Eretz Yisrael, despite the fact that circumstances dictated that he live in Chutz Laaretz. And we see this in an even more remarkable fashion later. We know it from the Haggadah, right? That Yaakov Avinu when he goes down to join Yosef in Mitzrayim, he doesn't go to settle there, he only goes to visit there. What do you mean that he only goes to visit there? Yaakov knows that he's going to die in Mitzrayim. What do you mean he's visiting there? If a person moves into a retirement residence, it's not a temporary move. A person knows that, that he's moving there. 
He's moving there for the rest of his life. What do you mean that Yaakov Avinu only went to visit in Mitzrayim? He didn't go to settle there. The answer is that regardless of one's physical, geographical location, there's also one's orientation. Axiologically, Yaakov always remained in Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael, Kedushas Eretz Yisrael, what Eretz Yisrael represented, that was his home, even when he knew full well that circumstances dictated that he would never return home in on Olam Hazah. He would never return to Eretz Yisrael. And Afal Pichain, Melamich, Loyarad, Yaakov, Avin, Lehishtakeh, Bimitzayim, Elalogoshan, he just went to visit there. He felt he was transient there, that this was temporary, because who am I, Yaakov Avinu, I'm a Eretz Yisrael, Dikir. I belong to Eretz Yisrael. Kedushas Eretz Yisrael, that's what expresses my values. The fact that Sham Hashchina Shora, that's, that's what my life is all about. The fact that circumstances dictate that I'm in Chutz Laaretz, but that doesn't mean that this is my home. My home is Eretz Yisrael. So in this Hanukkah, when in a way, which I don't know if it's, been paralleled in recent years, were challenged to be Mekayim, both a mitzvah hadlaka and a mitzvah re'iyah, certainly as we sit and we look, as we light the Ner Hanukkah, as we look at the Ner Hanukkah, it would behoove us to reflect on our connection to Eretz Yisrael and whether we, in the footsteps of Yaakov Avinu, even if circumstances presently dictate that we live in Chutz Laaretz, whether it's Logo of Chutz Laaretz, or whether it's Lehishtakeya, and what we can contribute, and, and don't underestimate the importance or the value or the repercussiveness of this contribution. What we can contribute is if our stay in Chutz Laaretz is Logot, regardless of how long it is, regardless of how long circumstances legitimately dictate that it will be, but if our tenure in Chutz Laaretz is Logot, not Lehishtakeya, Eretz Yisrael is our home, so that will be our, one of, part of our contribution to being Mekayim, this Hanukkah, the mitzvah of both Hadlaka and of Re'iyah.